hppodcraft.com. Look about you, Clark. You see the mountain and hill following after hill as wave on wave. You see the woods and orchard, the fields of ripe corn and the meadows reaching to the reed beds by the river. You see me standing here beside you and hear my voice. But I tell you that all these things, yes, from that star that has just shone out in the sky to the solid ground beneath our feet, I say that all these are but dreams and shadows. The shadows that hide the real world from our eyes. There is a real world, but it is beyond this glamour and this vision. Beyond these chases in auras, dreams in a career, beyond them all, as beyond a veil. I do not know whether any human being has ever lifted that veil, but I do know, Clark, that you and I shall see it lifted this very night from before another's eyes. You may think this all strange nonsense. It may be strange, but it is true. And the ancients knew what lifting the veil means. They called it Seeing the God Pan. That is one of the beginning paragraphs from Arthur Mackin's The Great God Pan. That's right, and we are covering that story here at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Chad, why are we covering an Arthur Mackin story on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast? <laughs> well, Chris, because for some time now, we've been covering other authors besides HP Lovecraft. These are authors that he held in high regard and stories that he spoke about in his essay on weird fiction called Supernatural Horror and Literature. I didn't realize until the last few years since we were doing this podcast, but it is one of the classics of horror literature. Lovecraft talks about this story at length, although Stephen King has also cited it as one of the best in English literature. Referenced in uh, Just After Sunset, which was a collection of his, that he says this story of, of Matt Arthur Mackins surmounts its rather clumsy prose and works its way relentlessly into the reader's terror zone. How many sleepless nights has it caused? God knows. A few of them were mine. I think Pan is as close to the horror genre comes to a great white whale. He loves it. Yeah, and then in another interview, he said it's one of the best horror stories ever written, maybe the best in the English language. I don't know if I would go that far after having given this a second read before to prep for the show. I agree more when he says that it is uh, rather clumsy prose, but there are things about it that are difficult to understand and comprehend just on a quick read. You have to really dig in and, and unpack things to make sure that you understand what's going on. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. No, uh, he is right in that it, it gradually gets to you. It is a scary story. Yeah. And if you really give it the focus that it deserves, you know, it'll pay off. Now, Lovecraft and Supernatural Horror and Literature had a few things to say. First, about Arthur Mackin, he said, Of living creators of cosmic fear raised to its most artistic pitch, few, if any, can hope to equal the versatile Arthur Mackin, author of some dozen tales, long and short, in which the elements of hidden horror and brooding fright attain an almost incomparable substance and realistic acuteness. Hmm. Lovecraft goes on to say some more about this particular story in Supernatural Horror, and we'll get to that after we've kind of talked yeah, through. Yeah, I think it's better to cover the story, and then we will go to Lovecraft and see what he had to say about it. Right, but let's talk a little bit about Arthur Mackin. Now, we've discussed him in past episodes when we were covering Lovecraft because uh, there's certain pieces of Mackin's work that 
are often cited when talking about the Dunwich Horror or Cool Air uh-huh. or the festival things that Lovecraft kind of cribbed from. Or, and I think Robert Price, when he did our Dunwich Horror episodes, flat out said he thought that the Dunwich Horror was sort of a, a retelling of the Great God. Yeah, or a, a pastiche, I think is or the word he uses. Yeah, it could have been intentionally his version of the Great God Pan. Right. It, there's a lot more action in <laughs> in Lovecraft's version of it, but it's yeah. still, uh, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. And we'll talk, I think if we talk about that after we cover the story, then we can sure, point out sure. those, those things. And, and I wanted to talk about Maga for a minute, because while we touched on some of his biographical details in those episodes, there's really a lot of interesting stuff in his life. He was born in Wales in 1863 and eventually moved to London, where he worked initially. He was just looking for work of any kind. Mm-hmm. And for a good amount of time, he worked in different editing jobs and, and as a translator. Yeah. But he had a lot of jobs. In, in 87, in 1887, he got kind of some backhanded luck. His father died within a month of him getting married. I don't remember if it was before or after, but mm-hmm. his father died and he was uh, with the inheritance that he received. He was able to kind of do his own thing for the next 15 years. So he didn't have to scrounge around and get day jobs. He could just write. Yeah. Because of that, it gave him a little space to write what he wanted instead of writing for the markets at the time. So he wrote The Great God Pan. Yep. Was one of the first things that he did, which he could do because he didn't have to worry about whether people read it or not, which is kind of why it's so out there. And he also wrote a novel anthology hybrid called The Three Imposters. And that's the one that's got all those novels in it. Mm -hmm. Novel meaning story. Yeah. The novel of the Black Seal, that kind of thing. Now, Great God Pan created a real sensation when it came out but it was almost universally panned by critics <laughs> yeah like people did not like it actually later in the 1920s Mackin published a lot of the most hostile reviews that he'd received <laughs> in his autobiography and but he, he released a whole book called precious balms that it had nothing but bad reviews in it uh, of his work <laughs> a lot of them for the great god pan and i totally get that i still keep a huge file of rejection letters that i got when i was initially sending out my novel children and he i mean there's just something <laughs> you want to keep that stuff maybe it's because you think later you'll be mad but you know he was already well successful when he published this book precious Balm. so i don't know what he was trying to do i think yeah. it's funny yeah yeah well now th- this is interesting and in 1899 his wife died of cancer and she was sick for a long time and it sort of really destroyed him because he was very close to his wife and he started getting into like this is the crazy stuff. He got into the Order of the Golden Dawn. Do you know what that is? That's that's the Hermetic Order. Is that Alistair Crowley? Yes. Thing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alistair Crowley, I think, started it, and then they kicked him out because he was too wacky. <laughs> it's they did, they did, and so there's and they became different branches. You know, they kept splitting up, but it was a mystic order that studied magic and Hermetic things and stuff like that. So he joined that for a while. Um, but didn't really get into it. It's just something he was trying to do Whoa. to get over his wife. Yeah. I didn't know that. You know, I know that he was pretty staunchly Catholic later in life and that he always had a preference for mysticism over, you know, materialism. Yeah. Just as an aesthetic. But I had no idea that he was getting into the yeah. <laughs> cult business. Oh, That's he did. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after that, he decided he wanted to get into acting. Right. That, yeah, that was uh, things were drying up in his inheritance when Amelia died. He needed work. And so for about eight years... He worked as an actor in a Shakespearean company. Yeah, he toured. He toured all around England and Wales and Scotland and stuff. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. He got remarried after that. Eventually, he started working as a journalist, writing for all sorts of publications. In 1910, he settled into a job as a reporter for the London Evening News. Yeah. Where this really odd thing happened, almost a Orson Welles War of the World yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 1914, he wrote the story called The Bowmen. This was obviously the war had just broken out and people were pretty shocked by the amount of casualties and the sorts of things that were going on in the trenches. And this story was about a, the ghosts of medieval British archers coming to the assistance of a group of World War One soldiers who were pinned down in the trenches. 
<laughs> and since he published it in the in the evening news, people sort of thought it was real. And yeah. pretty soon there were people coming forth to give like eyewitness accounts of it happening. Some other people <laughs> wrote pamphlets authenticating it. I mean, it was total madness. It took mocking forever to convince people that it was just a story. <laughs> yeah, which is that's fantastic. Yeah, that's it's crazy <laughs> how people just will latch onto this. I mean, we we talk about urban myths a lot on the show. I mean, it's that whole thing. With yeah, the, the escaped cougar and that there was. Did I, did I mention that on the show? Yeah, that there was okay. an escaped lion supposedly in England around here? Uh, no. <laughs> yes. Still. No, really? Still it's going on. And yeah, and it was and all it is is eyewitness accounts. There's no footprints, there's no any there was no reported escape from any zoo or any place anywhere because wow. it wasn't real, but it was on the flipping BBC. They had people yeah, talking going, "Oh yeah, I saw it first. I thought it was maybe a, a like a, a dog or something." And I realized it wasn't a dog. It was it was a actually it was a mountain lion and like <laughs> oh, can't believe you're reporting this. I love it. Well, the fact that he had medieval British archers coming to help them out, that's a commonality in a lot of Mackin's work. Like, he was really influenced by the mysticism of his Welsh, you know, heritage. Even though he lived in London most of his life, he he really had a fondness for his home. And also uh, that kind of Roman British lore that we find its way into the great god Pan, that that there were these sort of uh, pre-monotheistic rites happening in certain places in the British Isles. Right. So I I, I think that all syncs up, but that's pretty... It's pretty cool. Now, in the 1920s, there was a publisher that took on Mackin's work here in America and started putting it out in various anthologies. And that was when Lovecraft read it, when a couple of anthologies came out in 1923 and 1924 yeah. that uh, turned Lovecraft onto Mackin. And right after he had read that stuff, that's when he wrote stories like Cool Air and the Festival of the Dunwich Horror. Now, the first chapter that we're about to jump into in The Great God Pan, I mean, I thought that he'd taken from beyond like he had just ripped it off completely from this. Mm-hmm. story when I first read it a couple of years ago, The Great God Pan. As I was doing the research for this, I realized that From Beyond was written in 1920. And most of the information that I've gotten that we've been talking about here, I got from uh, S.T. Joshi's foreword uh, to his edition, his annotated edition of The Great God Pan, which uh, Larry Roberts from Bloodletting Press was very kind and sent you and I both copies of that. That's the yeah, it's I a beautiful it. book. Everybody should own it's it. It's a gorgeous book. And if you want to uh, patronize Larry's story, you can go to miskatonicbooks.com. And I did just check in. They have, I think, the paperback edition of this there. So you can get it for less than $20. The intro that Joshi wrote was really fantastic. And uh, it does help to have his annotations as you're going through the text. It also contains the full text of The Three Imposters, among other great Mac and weird tales. So I would recommend checking that out. And thanks once again to SC Joshi for all of his great research. But as I was saying, the anthologies that turned Lovecraft onto Mac and were written in 23, 24. So it was after he'd already written From Beyond. Wow. Okay, good. Yeah, I kind of always thought that myself, that it was his take on it but obviously it wasn't they just yeah. went to the same wavelength very much so the same wavelength because in from beyond we've got this um crazy researcher who's saying there's this other world beyond that we can't see but he's invented this machine that stimulates a part of your brain yeah the pineal gland and if that gets stimulated you're able to perceive that stuff and that is more or less exactly the premise of the first chapter of the great god pan called The Experiment. Let's get into it then. Now, the first excerpt that we heard at the beginning of the show was by reader Andrew Lehman. Yeah. Who thankfully is back to guide us through this one. It's probably going to be a multi-part episode thing. Just seemed like Lehman could really kill this, which he is doing so far. We're somewhere in a in a distant house, like a big mansion somewhere. Uh, they, they're very vague about where this is. And there's two guys talking. It's Clark and Raymond. Now, yeah. Raymond is uh, a doctor and he has and he was the guy that was talking. That's who we heard. And he was talking to Clark. 
And he talks about he's got this theory and because he, he's super into transcendental medicine. That's like yeah. his thing. So some kind of supernatural science. Right. And he's had this theory for like 20 years, but in the last five years, he's figured out a way to prove it. And he's kind of explaining to Clark what this other world is, that there is this world that exists outside of our world and that Mm -hmm. we could perceive it if only our brain were slightly different and that there is a procedure you can do with this tiny little cut in the brain that will allow people to see it. And and that now it is subtly different from... Lovecraft's from beyond where those things that we see, he doesn't allude to them being of this world. They're kind of like interdimensional. There might be something, there's something kind of offensive about whatever it is that we see in from beyond. Whereas here, this is nature in some kind of unfiltered way. Exactly. There's it's, it's, if, if you can reveal this to, you're going to see the forces of nature at work somehow, something it's awful because it's not what we're meant to see, but it's also kind of part of the natural world in a way. And Clark says is surgery is kind of in, extreme is that completely necessary and he says yes it's totally necessary because it's the only way it's going to work i've i've tested it i know what i'm doing and i have a willing participant somebody that is (laughs) (laughs) which i'm like okay that's that sounds pretty strange he has this young girl yeah mary he says mary come on in and 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 you're going to see pan tonight you're going to see the great god pan which when he says that he he doesn't necessarily meet a literal god pan he just means he's going to see into this ultimate nature right but do she say willing participant i she's definitely willing to follow the doctor but i don't know if she has a good idea of what's about to happen to her oh no i wouldn't say at all yeah i wouldn't say of course of course she doesn't but she trusts this doctor because and he says i i rescued mary from the gutter and from almost certain starvation when she was a child i think her life is mine to use as i see fit (laughs) it's like what well that's when this thing takes a left and it happens pretty quick it takes a left turn from this mad scientist, because it's got that mad scientist kind of thing at the beginning, right? I can show you things, and I've come up with stuff. But when he introduces this woman who's essentially his slave, yeah, and his rationale is simply that she was poor when he found her. Yeah. So because he got her out of that condition, then he's allowed to use her as a lab rat. It's, yeah. It's super misogynistic, and it's really off-putting. It's the first time that I started to feel really bad as I was reading the story. <laughs> what are they going to do? Yeah. No, this reminded me of my wife was just telling me about John Watson. He was a, a psychologist, psychiatrist guy uh, uh-huh. at the turn of the century. And he was doing these horrible tests on children. And it was at the time, it, people didn't seem to care too much that he was doing these things. But one of his okay. experiences was with baby Albert. And now my son's name is Albert. So... It hits a little close to home for me. Yeah. He would show this this baby a little fuzzy a rat, a little quite uh. you know, cute, fuzzy white rat. And every time the child would look at the rat or touch the rat, he would bang these two metal pipes behind the child to make him cry. And he kept doing this until the, the child would freak out just seeing the rat. And he also, this guy, uh, Watson, John Watson, not to be confused with Sherlock Holmes, John Watson. I wasn't making that. I wasn't confused about that, by the way. <laughs> he had this whole theory about holding withholding affection from your children to make them more proficient in jobs and careers and things like that and to test this he gave one of his children lots of attention and affection and one of them he withheld attention affection for his own children and it screwed them Uh up obviously it screwed up both of them like this the one that got the attention was kind of a jerk because he got all this kind of unwarranted attention and the one that didn't was the shell of a man who ended up killing himself soon after his father died it's so horrible. It's good now that ethics are much more important in research oh, and medicine no. than, I mean, I think there's obviously still 
ways to go. People could be more ethical. And I think that's always something to be put forward. But I think at the time, doing things like this probably wasn't that unethical, or at least it wasn't frowned, frowned upon as it was as much now. But I think it still was. Yeah, I think this is still kind of a criminal act in a way. I, I think that there's a point of view that Mackin is trying to put forth, actually. And it's funny because most of the story is completely supernatural. It's completely in the romantic tradition in a way and that like things are happening that are well supernatural but the, here it's it's science that causes all the ruin to happen though right it's this guy overreaching in a scientific practice that causes the evil to come forth mm-hmm. and i think that he's purposely making the scientist very callous and a, and a bad person yeah yeah because this is how he views the entire practice of science the author you know he's somebody that seeks the mysticism of the world and as we said a second ago and he just did, wasn't particularly fond of science and materialism yeah. When he brings Clark, they, he says, let's go inside and get this experiment going. He brings Clark in there and there's a chair set up, which in, in my head, I was imagining like a dentist's chair. I doubt that's really what it looks like. Oh, I thought it, in my head, I pictured it more of like an executioner's electric chair for some reason. I don't know why I did that either. Well, it's, it's described as an odd looking chair. Yeah, that's it. Those are two odd looking chairs. So it makes sense. But he has <laughs> got a footrest. We know that, too. So maybe it's more like a, uh, a barber's chair because he can raise and lower it and all that kind of. Yeah, I think this is like a barber's chair. So he sits a woman <laughs> where he's going to put her in there. But first, he's got to mix up some formulas. Yes. Which is awesome. I love it when scientists mix formulas. Did you ever spend time doing that when you were a little kid? Oh, my gosh. All the time. I take all types of stuff in the kitchen and mix it together and try and make a formula that would give me superpowers. And of course, it just made me sick. <laughs> Just made you sick. Yeah, <laughs> it's just fruit cocktail and ice cream and maybe some orange juice. Oh, oh, oh yeah, pepper and Tabasco sauce and all that stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, any the more disgusting it sounded, the more likely I thought it would give me some kind of added benefit. And of course, it, it right it didn't. Well, you know, you would be that one kid who nobody else thought of putting you know chipped beef and Windex together. You're the guy <laughs> that did that, and now <laughs> you have heat vision. I didn't do Windex. I was smart enough not to put anything toxic in there. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time I spent with just pouring fluid from one glass to another, like the mixing process was really. Yeah, that was fun. Anyway, so Dr. Raymond, he puts a couple of things together and the smell that comes out suddenly makes Clark kind of get into this drifty dream state, thinking about a day 15 years before when he'd he'd spent roaming the woods and meadows near his own home. So even whatever this prep serum is. It's kind of taking him into into nature and opening up his mind to this hyper hyper nature this hyper reality he's at his father's house and he's in the woods the woods are more beautiful and there's the smell of summer and it's amazing but then he encounters this he says he's face to face with a presence that was neither man nor beast neither the living nor the dead but all things mingled the form of all things but devoid of all form Mm, little foreshadowing yeah but then it says to him let us go hence and then he trips out into the darkness beyond the stars, whatever that means. And then he wakes up. Yeah, he wakes up and Raymond's like, oh, you're a little tired. You must drift it off, sleepy baby. I'm going to go get Mary. I'll be right back. <laughs> Clark's a little weirded out. He, he brings the girl in. She's about 17, dressed all in white, and she's really attractive. Yeah. Dr. Raymond says to her, are you willing to trust yourself to me entirely? She says, yes, dear. Creepy. It's really creepy. He brags. You hear that, Clark? <laughs> Here's the chair. She asks for a kiss before they start. And he kisses her on the mouth. Oh, so creepy. So gross, man. There's something about it, too, I imagine. And and Raymond's quite a lot older than her, I imagine, too. And I'm guessing, yeah. I don't like what he's doing. And then so this thing happens. Clark is kind of watching. He waves that whatever he just mixed up, he kind of places it under her nostrils. And she gets really pale, starts to struggle a little, and then kind of gets submissive mm-hmm. and still. 
and then unconscious. So Dr. Raymond then comes over to the chair, lets the back down, cuts away a circle from her hair. And then he takes a little instrument from his case and Clark turns away because he doesn't want to see him bang into her skull (laughs) and remove parts of her brain after giving her a kiss, some lobotomy action. And then after a few moments pass, they sit there waiting, clock ticking. Suddenly, as they watched, they heard a long drawn sigh. And suddenly did the color that had vanished return to the girl's cheeks. And suddenly her eyes opened. Clark quailed before them. They shone with an awful light, looking far away, and a great wonder fell upon her face, and her hands stretched out as if to touch what was invisible. But in an instant the wonder faded, and gave place to the most awful terror. The muscles of her face were hideously convulsed, she shook from head to foot, the soul seemed struggling and shuddering within the house of flesh. It was a horrible sight, and Clark rushed forward as she fell, shrieking to the floor. Three days later, Raymond took Clark to Mary's bedside. She was lying wide awake, rolling her head from side to side and grinning vacantly. Yes, said the doctor, still quite cool. It is a great pity. She is a hopeless idiot. However, it could not be helped, and, after all, she has seen the great god Pan. What a jerk. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. Here's yeah. my question. Yeah, yeah. He has no proof that she saw the great god pain. I don't. Yeah. No. How does he know that at all? For all he knows, he just gave her some terrible brain surgery and she's just Jack Nicholson at the end of Cuckoo's Nest now. That's it. Yeah. I have a lot of questions about this first chapter. Like, how did he know that cutting a per- part of a person's brain would enable them to see the great god pan? There had to be some kind of process to get you to this place was it maybe this drug that put her out well it's whatever he does it's to her brain but and he does say there's a to clark he says something like i don't want to bother you with shop clark i might give you a massive technical detail which would sound very imposing and would leave you as enlightened as you are now basically you'd never understand what i'm doing it's also a great way to sweep away the questions that you were just asking right exactly it's a science fiction or a horror story so you shouldn't really have to ask too many questions but i feel like there should have been something that how does he know all these things what clued him into this this concept and i thought that would have been an interesting thing to understand why he's doing this thing does he hope to eventually have himself see into this is that i mean i don't know but i was thinking that crawford tillinghast is a heck of a lot more brave than this guy because he took on his first test subject was himself he didn't hurt some harmless girl no. to find out if his machine worked. He did right. kill his servants, but that was just kind of a side effect. That was an accident. He didn't really mean it. He told them to be quiet. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know what the result is that he even hopes for exactly. It's strange. He's like, Clark, I proved with what we've done today that I can destroy a girl's life. <laughs> Science will forever appreciate my genius. About Clark, like who? who's this guy that he's just not telling anybody about this he's not going to the authorities going yeah i know this guy friend of mine kind of more of acquaintance really uh <laughs> has this young girl living with him and just did some brain surgery on her made her into an idiot uh so yeah. you might want to i don't know check on his credentials or make sure that he's sane <laughs> and not just doing horrible things to people for no good reason <laughs> 
Well, we do learn in later chapters that Clark is, yeah, you, you would think he would do that, even despite what we learn about him, yeah. which is that he has a kind of morbid fascination with mysteries that can't be explained, even though most of the time he's kind of a sensible guy. But even so, you would think he'd have some kind of morality. What kind of mystery has been? This isn't in Mysterious. This is a guy who says, hey, I'm going to do some brain surgery on this girl so she can see other things that we can't. <laughs> oh, she's an idiot. But t- trust me, it worked. <laughs> she's lucky. What? No, that's horrible. You just did a horrible thing right there. I, <laughs> it's so awesome. You know, one thing I wanted to point out before we bring this to a close in that paragraph that Andrew read at the very beginning, uh-huh. there's a quote. It says there is a real world, but it is beyond this glamour and this vision behind these chases and heiress dreams in a career. Oh, yeah. Chases and heiress dreams in a career. That is a couple of clips from a poem called Dotage by George Herbert, who is a Welsh poet, wrote that uh-huh. in 1633. Interesting. That poem was included in a collection called The Temple. Oh, just a coincidence. But. Could be, love, maybe not. Lovecraft show. Uh, we didn't even say that, you know, um, Arthur Mackin's name wasn't really Arthur Mackin, by the way. Arthur Lu- Llewellyn Jones, because it's a Welsh name. Lu- Llewellyn? Maybe it's pronounced Llewellyn. Arthur Llewellyn Jones. So he's, what a liar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one last question I had about this, Chris. Maybe you can sort yeah. this out for me. Mm-hmm. And this happens a lot in the story where things are almost said and then not completed. Uh, it leaves a little mystery there. Clark and Dr. Raymond, when they're outside and they're still discussing about the procedure they're about to do, Uh Raymond has just said, Clark, Mary will see the God Pan. Clark turns to him and says, but you remember what you wrote to me? I thought it would be requisite that she, and he doesn't finish the statement. He whispered the rest into the doctor's ear. The doctor responds and says, not at all, not at all. That is nonsense. I assure you, indeed, it is better as it is. I'm quite certain of that. What the hell are they talking about? I don't know, but what I suspect, maybe that... She a virgin? I thought maybe it had something to do with that. In fact, that's probably exactly what it is. I thought it would be requisite that she be a virgin. Be a virgin? Is that what he's saying? Yeah, I, I'm thinking. And then Raymond is like, "Oh, I've been banging her." And then that's is that that's what it is, isn't it? So if she's if she's been getting banged, then you know she's going to be more open to this stuff. That's what I took out of it. But I mean, your that's... your your literary scholar analysis of it <laughs> is that. She's getting banged. And if she's getting banged. <laughs> hey, we're just some pals hanging out here. Five I know. I know. We are. That's it. You know, this is how we just talk. Cu- this is how a couple old talk. soldiers. This is exactly. how people talk. Well, um, he's saying, I think that's what it, he's saying. You think she should be a virgin? The doctor's saying, nah, it's fine. I, I'll be getting up in that. But then, And then he says something might go wrong. You'd be a miserable man for the rest of your So I thought that perhaps the doctor had gotten her pregnant. Oh, yeah, yeah, that could definitely be it, because that does play into the rest of the story. Yes, yes, and then the rest of the story, though, if I thought it I mean, most things that I've read about it, they say it's more like the Dunwich Horror, where it's like this alien being is kind of what did it. It was Pan. Yeah. But I thought maybe she was already pregnant with a doctor's kid. Could be. And then it just got into the baby or something. But, um, okay, well, I don't know. Maybe folks can chime in on that, and we could come back to the next few chapters with some opinions from others. So we'll be back uh, next time with uh, more on The Great God Pan. There's How many chapters are in this thing total? Eight, I think. We'll speed through a couple of more of them, but yeah, we'll uh, go it's a, a really faster. cool story, and, and there's lots to discuss with it. And I, I do want to say thanks, everybody, for being patient with us during the recent feed troubles Sorry and as we that. moved over to the server. Sorry about that. We're a small shop, so when these things come up, we got to kind of scramble around to make sure they get solved. I really appreciate people being patient and writing in and, and going back and forth with us as we try to uh, get this thing running like a smooth ship runs. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. We're getting there, though, and it's it's pretty good. And, um, you know, tell your friends and neighbors if they want to hear more on our coverage of The Great God Pan to tune in. After that, I think we're going to get into uh, 
we were talking today about maybe doing the Willows next. Algernon Blackwood. That should be pretty great. Also, I want to thank Andrew Lehman for his dulcet tones making me feel yes. so darn scared. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Andrew, thanks. He's going to be with us throughout this voyage. And hopefully we'll have him back again sometime soon for another time machine. Time machine, episode. yes. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. Actually, I'd like him to talk about the 1920s, which is something... Uh, I know he knows a lot about. We're going to do that soon. So subscribe, tell your friends and neighbors. Uh, thanks, everybody, for supporting us, and thanks for your patience again. I am Chad Pfeiffer, concluding for now. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Thank you.